Well, I'm sure we've all heard of the Cape Crusader, right? Batman. Depending on your age, you, you may remember Batman from the comic books, or maybe the Batman and Robin TV show. Remember Pow and Bang and all these. Or maybe you know Batman and Robin from the several movies over the last 15 years. No matter where you encounter this superhero, you'll also find Bruce Wayne's loyal and tireless butler, friend and father figure, Alfred Pennyworth. While Batman is fighting the dastardly enemies he knows, back at Wayne Manor, resides someone who's who's taking care of everything else. Someone he can trust to keep all of his secrets. Someone who cares about him as much as a father who, through his quiet service, makes it possible for Batman to do what he does. Resourceful and calm, Alfred, not only uh, you know, does he serve, but he never has these exciting adventures. But he's a vital part of Batman's life, with skills as varied as maintaining the Batmobile and building the Batcomputer and keeping the Cape Crusader's costume in pristine condition. Alfred also provides first aid, including removing bullets so Batman doesn't have to go to the hospital when he's injured. Depending on which Batman version you follow, Alfred's also mastered hybrid rose breeding, creating his own rose called the Pennyworth Blue. He's also a master at computer programming, computer engineering, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, nanotechnology, and biotechnology, as he single-handedly builds and programs all of the things that Batman and this next generation of technology needs. You see, there is no Batman if there is no Alfred. Alfred makes everything Batman does possible. No glory, no recognition, no credit, no fame. Just quiet, competent service that makes it all possible. You see, it's not just the superheroes that are changing the world. It's also the servants that are changing the world. Last week, we were challenged by the scriptures to aspire to spiritual leadership, to have a goal, a dream, a godly ambition for God to use us. This week, we find out that path to spiritual leadership is to serve us. And it's nothing at all like the way one aspires to leadership in this world. Our world almost solely focused on Batman leadership, while God is almost solely focused on Alfred servanthood. Remember that old Maranatha chorus? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Our pastor today talks about the office of deacon in the local church. There are only two offices clearly taught in the Bible for the organization of the local church. The first is the elder overseer pastor, whose primary role is leadership in the word, which we looked at last week. And the second official office in the church is deacon. The very definition of the word deacon means servant. The role of the deacon in the local church is to serve the church. This two-layer church structure can be seen in the church from the very beginning of the church in its earliest forms. Acts 6 shows that to us. Acts 6, 1 through 6. And it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The events of Acts 6 occur somewhere around a year or so after the great start of the church on that momentous day of Pentecost. The church has grown now by thousands, by multiple thousands, and there's still only one leadership structure, the apostles. With the needs of the church starting to grow and and, and starting to pull the apostles away from the primary duties of preaching the word and prayer, they are led by God to inaugurate a second layer of church leadership to serve the church, to administer the details of the daily running and organizing of the church. Seven men were chosen to serve. They could be called proto-deacons. The official office of deacon had not yet been established, as had the official office of elder, pastor, overseer had not yet been established. The church is still very much focused on the apostles as the leaders and on this one church in Jerusalem. But soon that all changed. Persecution came and scattered the believers all over the Roman world. And then this two-layered leadership structure inaugurated here in Acts 6 would become the biblical pattern as, as God reveals two official Church offices as pastor, elder, overseer, and deacon. Some 30 years after these events in Acts 6, we see these two offices have come to be solidified as God's structure of the church from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The role and responsibility of deacons in the church is critically important to the proper functioning of a church. So please open your Bible with me to our passage we've been going through in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Follow along as I read, starting at verse 8. It says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we come to you this morning eager to learn from you, eager to learn from your word, eager to have your spirit take your word into our hearts, into our thoughts, into our minds, and to challenge us and to change us and to move us and to teach us. May it be in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the deacon is the servant. One of the first things we notice in verse 8 is the word likewise. The word connects the teaching about deacons to the teaching that precedes it about elders. Just like the focus on being a pastor is about their character, so the focus on the deacon is about their character. But just like the passage above is focused on elders, but yet can apply to each of us who aspire to be used of God into spiritual leadership. So this passage, though it's focused on the office of the deacon, really applies to each of us as we all are called to serve God and to serve one another. Each of us, each one of us are called to serve and are called to strive for these similar character qualities. See, the first word in verse 8 literally translated as just the word servant. We're not all called to be deacons, but we are all called to be servants. Deacons specifically and all servants in the church generally are supposed to be dignified. The first character trait there of a biblical servant is to be honorable, to be worthy of respect. It is to be earnest and sincere. Whether a person has this quality can be clearly displayed in the next characteristic that's mentioned. It says a deacon is not to be double-tongued. A servant is not to be double-tongued. That's to say he's not to say one thing to one person and then say something different to another person. A deacon's not supposed to start gossip or spread gossip, but instead an honor is honorable and worthy of respect. You can depend on what a deacon says. A deacon is known for their truthfulness and consistent character. The next two characteristics are similar to the ones we already talked about last week uh, for the pastor from verse 3. There are a lot of overlap of these two uh, roles and characteristics, and we would expect that because God is detailing out the character qualities that he wants in the leadership of his church. Verse 9 is a great verse because it puts the service of the deacon into its proper context. A deacon is supposed to hold firm to the fundamentals of the faith with a clear conscience. They're supposed to know the truth. They're supposed to believe the truth. They're supposed to live the truth. The word mystery doesn't mean secret or hidden or, or unknown, but it means what was once unknown has now been made known. One commentator wrote, the word mystery means truth once hidden, but now revealed by God. The great doctrines of the faith are hidden to those outside the faith, but they can be understood by those who trust the Lord. Deacons must understand Christian doctrine and obey it with a good conscience. It's not enough to sit in meetings and decide how to run the church. They must base their decisions on the word of God and they must back up their decisions with godly lives. This commentator goes on to say, a deacon who does not know the word of God cannot manage the affairs of the church of God. A deacon who does not live the word of God cannot manage the church of God. Simply because a member is popular or successful in business or generous in their giving does not mean they're qualified to serve as a deacon because the focus of the qualifications of a deacon, like the focus of the qualifications of a pastor is on character. It's on godliness. It's on fidelity to God's word. Everything done in the church. Everything. From the nursery all the way up through adults, 
from taking care of the building and the yard to preaching and teaching, every decision must be based on the Word of God. And pastors and deacons and the decisions they make are supposed to set examples of godly decisions. Whereas pastors and elders are supposed to be able to teach, deacons are only required to hold fast to the word. This is part of the functional difference of the two offices, both complementing each other, both necessary for the church, yet with a separate focus. Verse 10 says that uh, before someone becomes a deacon, he must be tested. So what's the deacon test? Right? What's a prospective deacon supposed to prove? Well, it tells us right here in our passage. First, they have to prove and pass the test that they're holding firm to God's word. That with a good conscience, this is what they believe. This is who they are. And second, that their growing character is based off a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the test here is not some kind of test you take in school. Now, the test here implies observance of a person over time. The qualification here is somewhat analogous to what in verse 6 for the pastor, where it says an elder is not supposed to be a recent convert. Any prospective church leader needs to be observed over time to show to all their commitment to sound doctrine and their growing godly character. All right, here's an underlying truth for all of us. People are watching you. People are watching you. All of you guys are watching me. Especially right now, right? You're all watching me. But we're also all watching the deacons. And if reality would say it right, we're all watching each other. Because all of us are called to be servants of Christ. All of us are called to prove over time our commitment to sound doctrine and to growing godly character. All of us have this test in front of us. All of us are challenged to hold firm to the faith and demonstrate a growing conformity of our lives to the image of Jesus Christ. All of us. Now, verse 11 is unique in this passage for the deacons. The qualifications of an elder never mention his wife, while the qualifications of a deacon does. It's not that the Elder isn't supposed to have a wife with the same character qualities as a deacon's wife, but the difference here, I believe, is in the participation of the ministry. I think the reason for including the qualification for a deacon's wife is that she can be more of a partner in the official service to the church, whereas in the role of an elder, the wife is more of a support to the official service in the church. When you call a pastor to the work of the ministry, you never call the pastor's wife as well. She's a great asset to the ministry, and she can have significant ministries of her own, but she's a support for her husband's pastoral duties. She's not a co-pastor. She's not an assistant pastor. Although my wife is my partner in every marital way, in every service way, she does not share in the decision-making or the responsibility of being a pastor. My wife is not burdened with the calling of responsibility of the pastorate. But with deacons, you see... It's possible, but their wives can participate in the fulfillment of their ministry. The wife doesn't carry the responsibility of the ministry, but they can be a part of it, assisting in the very function of the ministry. We have at times at the church called upon the deacon's wife 
to give certain support to the church, and uh, especially, particularly to women. The Bible is clear that for a deacon's wife to have any participation in the fulfillment of her husband's ministry, the wife must have the very same characteristics of her husband. She must be dignified, that exact same word, worthy of respect. She must control her tongue, not using it to hurt people, but to help people. She must take her service seriously with temperance. That means being even healed. And in all things, she must be faithful, trustworthy in every way. Verse 12 makes it clear about the role that is given to the wife in verse 11. Verse 12 tells us what verse 11 means. The best commentary on the scriptures is always the scriptures. The wives are not deacons. They obviously can't be, right? Because what does verse 12 say? They have to be the husband of one wife. And a wife cannot be the husband of one wife. Yet the deacon's wives can participate. They can assist, but yet without carrying the responsibility of the office. In a biblically ordered, biblically sound church, women have a great deal of leadership and responsibility and influence throughout the church. Verse 12 details the same qualifications for deacons as for elders. They're to be one woman men, faithful, devoted to their wives, able to manage their homes and their children well. As we said last week, any leader must first prove themselves and their abilities to be a godly leader, to be a godly servant in their home before they become a leader in the church. Hopefully we're growing as a church to clarify and more fully apply God's truth as it comes to the role of elder and overseer and deacon. It's always our responsibility to know and to do God's word. Not to know and do what we want. Not to know and do what the Christian culture does. Not to know and do what we've always done before. Not to know and do it this way because it's the easy way. We must first and foremost be a church. Be a church membership. Be a church leadership that is passionately, faithfully following God's word. Verse 13 concludes the teaching on deacons in this passage. It says, being a deacon is worthy spiritual aspiration. For deacons who serve well gain a good standing within their church and also grow in their faith, becoming more like Christ. I would hope, I would hope, that this is the aspiration of every man sitting in this room today to someday serve the church as a deacon. See, the role of deacon is to serve the church by applying God's truth with an ever-growing, godly, Christian character. The role of any servant of the church is the same. The role for all of us as servants of Christ It's to his church to use our gifts and abilities that he has given to us, applying God's truth with an ever-growing, godly Christian character. Folks, we so often look at these roles and we think about status. Our country is so focused on status. The elder has a greater leadership role in the church than the deacon. So in our Western mindset, we give a greater status to the elder role than the deacon role. But God doesn't do that. He never does that. There are differing roles, but they are equal in necessity in their service to Christ. That is true for each one of us. And folks, we have the greatest example of that truth and that example for us. 
as our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who alone is worthy of worship and praise. The one who only is the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things. The author and the finisher of our faith. For Jesus, the exact image of God, the one with whom the greatest possible status of all exists. He said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, the greatest aspiration of our life is to just simply serve Jesus. The greatest aspiration of our lives is to just simply serve Jesus. He came to serve me. He came to serve you. All we can do is respond from a heart of gratitude and serve him. David in Psalm 84 says this has always captured my heart. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day serving God than a thousand elsewhere. We'll let the call go out throughout our church. Now is that day. Today is that day to serve Jesus with all that you are for all that he is and has done for you. Today, right now, may the deepest desire of our hearts, the greatest aspirations of our souls, is to be known as a servant of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. What would Christ do through you? What would Christ do through us if the greatest desire of our soul was to serve Christ? How would Christ be glorified? I want to take a few moments now this morning and focus our thoughts on being like our Savior and becoming a true servant. So please turn in your Bibles with me there to Philippians chapter 2. By far, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Philippians 2. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let you not only look out for your own interest, but also the interests of others. Folks, sometimes God's word needs no commentary at all. It needs no commentary. Those two sentences say what they say and they mean what they mean and we need to hear it and apply it into our lives. The attitude of a servant. This is it. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, considering others more significant than ourselves. Not looking out for our own interests, but also the interests of others. How would our lives change if this was our attitude? How would our lives change in our service to Jesus Christ if this is what we believed and lived? 
How would our lives change if we really considered other people more significant than ourselves? Think about it now. How would your marriage change if you thought of your spouse more significant than yourself? How would your parenting change if you thought of your child more significant, their interest before yours? How would the way we respond at work change? How would the way we respond to our parents change? How would my experience at school change if I counted others more significant than myself? Folks, how would church change if we considered each other more significant than ourselves? Do nothing. How many things? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. The power of simply hearing, believing, applying, living God's word. In your service, do you have the attitude of a servant? Well, now let's look back in Philippians and see the position of a servant. Verses 5 through 7, it says, Have this mind among you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus has the ultimate position, right? I mean, this is Jesus. He's the ultimate, right? He's the greatest leader, the most powerful, the highest prestige. And what does Jesus do? Does he cling to his status? No, he lays it all aside to serve. He didn't hold on selfishly to what he could demand righteously in his ultimate position. No, instead, he willingly, with humility, gave it up for you and me, which changed our whole lives. Folks, that's the Christmas story right there. That's a Christmas story. So often we get so focused on a newborn baby and forget and lose sight of the fact that this newborn baby is the one and only almighty God who purposely emptied himself, who purposely took on the form of a servant to be born in the likeness of men. It's called the incarnation. And it is the miracle of Christmas. The Virgin Mary having a baby is not the main miracle of Christmas. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being born a baby. Now that's the heart of Christmas. Jesus, the ultimate superlative, name above all names, the Alpha and Omega, the eternal self-existing one, took the form of a servant and in the fullness of time was born of a woman and found in the likeness of men. That's Christmas. And no greater condescension has there ever been. No amount of condescension in our service can ever compare with that. Ever. And yet Jesus is our example. The one to whom we conform our lives to. In your service, do you take the position of a servant? Philippians 2.8 describes the sacrifice of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the sacrifice of love. The greatest act of service ever was when Jesus died on the cross 
for you and me. Our sin had separated us from God. We were alienated from God's grace. That song we sang today, put it this way. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Question for you today. Are you still running your hellbound race? Are you still saying no to the cost? No to the cross? Or have you beheld God's love displayed in Jesus Christ? who took our place, who took our sin, who took our judgment, so that now, gloriously now, all we know is grace. See, today is the day to choose Christ, to give Him your life and to surrender your life in service to Him. And believer, today is your day to look anew at God's love displayed, to grasp anew God's amazing grace and surrender again to serve Jesus with your whole heart and life. Let go of worldly ambitions. Let go of the things in this life that we grasp on so tightly to that we think give us meaning and hope. Instead, be a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, being a servant of Christ is not easy. Being a servant is going to cost you something. It costs Jesus the cross. Following Christ is costly. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 and 25, through 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself. Following Jesus is not the indulgence of earthly blessings. We don't follow Jesus to have him bless us. See, following Jesus is a continual putting to death of our selfish wants and a continual focus on doing what God wants. We do not follow Jesus for what we get out of it. We do not follow Jesus for what we can put into it. We follow Jesus. We worship. We sacrifice. We serve because it's Jesus. He alone is the reason. Because he's our Savior. Because of what he has done. We follow him and conform our lives to his example because it's Jesus, our Savior. Being a servant will cost you something. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your talents, your resources, your attention, your love. And as Jesus himself said, it's going to cost you your life. Luke 10 7 through 10, Jesus tells a story to his disciples illustrating the role of a servant. Jesus said, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will you not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant? Because he did what was commanded? So you also, Jesus said, when you have done all that you were commanded, 
say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So you also, Jesus said, when you have done all that you were commanded, we say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. See, consistently and sacrificially obeying Jesus is our duty. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what a servant does for his master. Consistently and sacrificially obeying Jesus is what we are supposed to do. That is our duty. That's what a servant does to his master. That's what a follower of Jesus Christ does for Jesus Christ. Now, it's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's often hard. It's often what we don't want to do. But being a servant means putting other people first. Being a servant means being humble. Being a servant means sacrificing what you want for the benefit of the other. Being a servant's not full of a bunch of thank yous and attaboys. It's our duty to obey and to serve Christ. And it's also the greatest privilege of our lives. Amen? Did you hear that? It's our duty to obey and serve Christ without the thank yous, without the attaboys, without the recognition. Because it is our privilege to serve Jesus Christ with our life. The greatest privilege of our life. Lee Eklov wrote, When I was a kid in the mid-50s, Parker Brothers came out with a game for church families, if you can imagine. It was called Going to Jerusalem. Google it, look it up. It's an amazing, cool little game. Going to Jerusalem. Your playing piece was not a hat or a, or a Scotty dog like in Monopoly. In going to Jerusalem, you got to be a real-life disciple. You were represented by a little plastic man in a robe with a beard and some sandals and a staff. In order to move across the board, you looked up answers in this little black New Testament that, provided, that was provided with the game. I remember that you always started in Bethlehem, and you made stops at the Mount of Olives and Bethsaida and Capernaum and the Stormy Sea, Nazareth and Bethany. If you rolled the dice well, you went all the way to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But you never got to the crucifixion. You never got to the resurrection. There were no demons. There were no angry Pharisees. You only made your way through the nice stories. It was a safe adventure, perfectly suited for a Christian family on a Sunday afternoon. It never occurred to me while leaning over the card table, jiggling the dice in my hand, that traveling with Jesus wasn't meant for plastic disciples who looked up verses in little black books. If you're going to walk with Jesus as a disciple, if you're going to serve Jesus with your life, you need to change your expectations. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. What are some expectations today? Evaluate things. What are some expectations that you need to change in your life as you aspire to grow as a servant of Jesus Christ? What are some things in your life that you need to change to better reflect the heart, your heart of service to Jesus? We all desire to serve Jesus. What can better reflect your heart? Think about it. How can you become a better servant of Jesus Christ? What specific areas do you need to change? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today so challenged by your word, so thankful for Jesus Christ. 
Lord, today we just lift him up. It's all for him and about him and through him. And we humbly submit our service to Jesus Christ. Failures, yes. You know, sinning, yes. But Lord, we renew again, day after day, hour after hour, our commitment to be a faithful follower, to be a committed servant of Jesus Christ. Lord, each one of us sitting here right now have areas that we need to improve, areas that we need to change, you know, misconceptions that need to break down and, and expectations that need to uh, be destroyed. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to see you more clearly right now. Move within us, Spirit, so that we can see your word and the power of Jesus' example there given to us there in Philippians, that we can expose our hearts to the to our attitudes of service, our position of service, the sacrifice of service. And change us now, Lord, today. Give us insight. Because we all desire to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.